welcome to PCOM Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein, and today I'm joined by Dr. Virginia Stallings. Dr. Stallings is board-certified pediatric physician nutrition specialist and serves as the director of the Nutrition Center and Jean A. Cordner Endowed Chair in the Division of Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. She's also professor of pediatrics at CHOP and at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. A specialist in health, therapeutic nutrition, and dietary intake and body composition, Dr. Stallings focuses her research on nutrition-related abnormalities in people with chronic disease, including cystic fibrosis, HIV-AIDS, sickle cell disease, cerebral palsy, Crohn's disease, congenital heart disease, obesity, and osteoporosis. She is the recipient of numerous awards and honors and maintains professional memberships in the American Pediatric Society, Society for Pediatric Research, National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine, National Academy of Medicine, American Society for Nutrition, and the American Academy of Pediatrics. Welcome, Dr. Stallings. Thank you. Delighted to be here. It's great to have you with us. I have a couple questions for you, and I'll, my first one will be that we know that disease-related malnutrition and malnutrition more broadly is a global public health challenge with long-term impacts on overall health outcomes. New therapies and treatment options aimed at addressing this issue have recently come to market, including one based on your cystic fibrosis research. Can you talk about that? Yes, thank you for, uh, for those questions. One to talk more generally about malnutrition in healthcare in the US. And there really has been growing awareness of this, uh, particularly around malnutrition and hospitalized patients. And in that setting, very good data now that shows that if uh, in adults, particularly who are malnourished, that what you end up seeing is real increases in um, the risk of death in that group of patients, longer hospital stays, and more frequent 30-day readmissions. And I mentioned this because all of those are things that have become real metrics, you know, in healthcare and uh, us trying to provide healthcare and keep down costs. So really in thinking about nutrition, it's very broad, uh, certainly across the diagnoses that you mentioned that I've been studying, uh, but on across from the premature infants to the, the frail elderly. So that has always been one of my major interests. It's, as you said, my focus really is in medical nutrition. And then that work ultimately, and one of the diseases that I've worked in the most, cystic fibrosis, that interest in the chronic malnutrition and the chronic fat malabsorption of people with CF because of the pancreatic disease really led me to focus on what could we do better? Uh, because the products that we had had, our approaches to care had made some improvements, but we were pretty much stuck. And from that, I got to work uh, with Dr. David Yasser, who is the inventor of this very special structured lipid compound. And that's what we studied in the NIH-funded clinical trial in cystic fibrosis. 
And what we were able to see then is that with this structured lipid, which really did not require lipase for digestion, we saw much improved fat absorption doing some research only test uh, for that, better growth in the children and adolescents and better biochemistry. So some of the biomarkers uh, for nutritional status. Then after we finished all of that work, that then led to, could we bring this into uh, clinical care? And that's where the product that was in the trial, I'm happy to say now, has been moved into clinical care and is available. And it's really for patients that might have any um, disease-related malnutrition, particularly those with fat absorption problems, but also anybody else that's had unintentional weight loss. Oh, great. You know, changing gears a little bit, you recently chaired a report from the National Academy of Medicine on the relationship between sodium intake and chronic disease prevention. You know, and all we hear about is sodium and hypertension, sodium and hypertension. So can you tell us more about that? Yes, thank you for asking about that, because I do think this, this is worth um, more people, more clinicians, and more patients learning about. So not everybody understands that a lot of the recommendations for dietary intake for the whole country go through a very, very rigorous review. And um, I had a chance of being a part of one of those committees to look at the, do we need to revise the recommendations for sodium and potassium? And the report came out at the end of 2019. And the really big findings, the big change here was that with this National Academy of Medicine process, we came up with new recommendations that were able to directly link the dietary intake for sodium to trying to reduce uh, chronic disease risk. And as you said, in, in sodium, that really goes directly to sodium intake to blood pressure, to hypertension, and from hypertension to cardiovascular disease. And this, this new concept of chronic disease risk reduction is now being walked through how it might help patient care. So we had numbers now, goals where we want adults to, and children older than 13 and adults, to really reduce their sodium intake to that that would be less than 2,300 milligrams a day. Now, to put that in perspective, most men in the U.S. are taking over 4,000, and most women uh, are taking over 3,000. So we have a lot of room to make improvements. And this really then was also linked with some of the new changes in what the definition of a normal blood pressure versus mild hypertension. So a lot's being done in the space. I, I would like to say that the other thing that to me, even though I'm very nutrition-based, surprised me is in the US with our current dietary patterns, almost all of our sodium comes from pre-prepared foods. So whether it's the restaurant foods, the carryout foods, now that we're in the middle of COVID, we, we're not going to restaurants much anymore, but also the sauces and the condiments and that sort of thing. And we, the committee really reached out also to the food industry to help get them more engaged in thinking about, can they do 
reductions in the sodium content across, um, across all their foods. So where does that sodium come from? So it's not cooking at home very much. It's not added salt. That public health message has, has been taken care of. Uh, but in our food supply right now, most of our sodium comes from bread and pizza and cured meats. So thinking of the bacon, the deli meats, uh, hot dogs. And that's why you really see the recommendations focused on those foods. And those food industries have been challenged to find a way uh, to improve this. Uh, for kids under two, most of their sodium comes uh, really from cheese and cured meats as well. So we have some real good direction now about focusing on food patterns and making a difference. And just to say one thing, because this was the sodium and a potassium review, we get too much sodium, we do not take in enough potassium. And I think everybody thinks of the potassium uh, mostly being from fruits and vegetables, but also to mention that a good bit of potassium comes from milk and from white potatoes. And interestingly, in adults, a good bit of the potassium comes from coffee. So we want to reduce our sodium and increase our potassium and hopefully directly relate to uh, helping with the hypertension epidemic. So, you know, in a follow-up question, because you triggered something that, you know, I think about all the time, you know, we have this tremendous drive towards plant-based foods, that all our problems will be solved if everyone just went on a plant-based diet and avoided you know, white bread, avoided white potatoes, you know, and, and when, you know, stayed away from meat and go to, you know, in, to a plant-based meat hamburger or whatever. Mm -hmm. But when, when you actually look at the nutritional uh, guidelines and you look at what's in the content on those labels, the sodium content on a lot of the meat substitutes is through the roof. And what you just said in terms of certain food groups really provide a lot of potassium. So how does the average person, how do, you know, where do they go for really accurate nutritional information to help make these really important life decisions? You know, that's a great question and you're right. Things are happening so fast in that space. So as you said, many of the plant-based foods that we have right now are really quite processed. And if you will, are sort of legacy foods that, um, some have sodium that is, is too high. And those food industries, those food manufacturers are being challenged to get some of the sodium out of those. What we learned in the process is often you need some sodium because it's, well, it's important for taste, but it's also important for food preservation. But because the companies had never really tried very hard to reduce the sodium, we feel like they've got room to do that. Now, for some of the newer plant-based uh, foods that are coming out, again, I think those particular companies have the ability to do their sort of really novel product. Most of these now are, you know, are, like you were saying, uh, plant-based protein sources rather than red meat or chicken, the two that really there's a lot of um, new products coming out. And we really are trying to get them to focus 
your brand new foods. Don't put in any extra sodium that you don't need. The only ones I will say that I think do deserve particular attention are the, the, um, the cured meats. And I think through a number of different process evaluations, both the sodium content and the, um, the nitrates that are in those products, which are um, potential carcinogens. So I think the cross board, we're trying to get people to eat fewer of those. It's not that you don't eat them ever, but reduce the frequency. So they become special foods, not something you eat every day. And then you've got a reduction in sodium and you also have a reduction in this risk of cancer, mostly colon cancer uh, that's been recognized. Well, thank you for that. As physicians, one of the most important roles we play is educator, whether to patients, the public, or students. From your perspective, how can we be better educators when it comes to nutrition and disease prevention? You know, I think, like you said, for all of us who are, our careers are anchored in academic centers, which means we're the first ones who get to meet the new medical students, um, and then be a part of their training through residency and fellowship. This issue of where to get nutrition education has been difficult over many, many years. There was a period of time in the 80s and 90s where nutrition curriculum was getting a lot more attention in medical schools. And in essence, we got more hours in the curriculum. Since then, there's been a real move to reduce the number of hours that medical students have in classes and replace that with case-based learning or self-learning. And unfortunately, one of the things that got dropped or said, oh, go learn about it yourself was nutrition. So at this point in time, it's, it's really nutrition education in a formal didactic way may be quite weak in medical schools. On the other hand, a lot of people have picked up the idea, well, let's do uh, culinary medicine. Let's get medical students to learn about food and nutrition by getting them to learn more about cooking and menu planning, the very things we were just talking about, about not just uh, you know, what's on the food label, but what's the diet pattern. And um, that's been nice to see. Personally, I think we should focus I mean, we need the, the core learning for the medical students, and it needs to be more than what they learn in biochemistry, which is often where all the, the uh, nutrition is introduced. I think we have a unique opportunity once we get uh, our medical students differentiated a little bit, and they go into residency, because now we can talk about either uh, adults or children, uh, surgical issues you know, versus medical issues. And I think there could be a real opportunity in residency now to come back. And we, we try to do this certainly at CHOP with our pediatric group to get into that core curriculum. So now it's like, now you know what your medical specialty is gonna be. Let's start to drill down and teach you the fundamentals that are gonna be a part of your practice. And then those who continue training you know, for subspecialty, again, a real chance to say, all right, now we've got it down to a subspecialty, a, a relatively small list of diseases and really finish off the training there. Our patients 
are much more interested in nutrition than they used to be. They're much more aware of the nutrition con you know, contribution to things like uh, heart disease or diabetes or even some cancers. So we need to prepare our young doctors to be knowledgeable and to be comfortable talking about these kinds of things. Well, thank you. I'm sure you've got a, a couple of questions for me. Yes, well, actually, I think what we just talked about is perfect. So, you know, I've, I've certainly enjoyed getting to know PECOM better and better over the last few years. But tell me a little bit about what you feel like you're doing on now the three medical campuses, sort of in that idea of what are we trying to be sure that our medical students hear as part of that early training? And how does that fit into the same challenge? We don't have enough time, but we've got to teach them specific diseases and public health, you know, get them out the door appreciating disease prevention. It's everything that you just said. You know, it, it's the fact that it can't be just in biochemistry and it can't just be disease states uh, that we really don't see anymore. You know, it can't be vitamin de deficiencies where we talk about scurvy and bury bury. You know, we, we've got to talk about nutrition in, in the modern sense where it's kind of we're over nutrition, you know, and it's specific for how to prevent cardiovascular disease. And more importantly, how do we prevent obesity and type two diabetes, which is this epidemic in this country. So it's gotta be integrated into the curriculum at all levels, whether it's physiology or pathology or whether it's clinical didactics or in the third and fourth year. And you mentioned culinary medicine. We started that as an elective four years ago, available to first and second year medical students. It's a, a six week course where we do it through case studies and cooking, where they learn to cook healthy because it's a way to relate to patients. And I think, you know, patients can look at it differently as opposed to in our day, you handed a patient a 1500 ADA diet as they walked out the door and said, here, follow this. And somehow we expected them to get a behavior change and come back 30 pounds lighter and, and cured from type two diabetes. So that's a fantasy. You know, we really need to integrate it at all levels. And I know that Penn started their culinary medicine a couple of years ago for, for actually for fourth year students. They looked at it a little differently because students have been out on rotation for a while. They got a feel for clinical medicine. They thought it potentially had more value at the fourth year level. We're doing it because it's easier. They're on campus. We did it, you know, in coordination with our food vendor. So, and it draws very well, you know, between 40 to 80 students, we offer it twice a year and we offer it on all three campuses. The challenge, you know, is medical students, it's not only, you know, drinking from a fire hose and what's on the test and what's on the boards. So, if, and then what do you take out? If we bring more of this into the curriculum, what are we replacing? Because we're time limited. So it really is a challenge, but I don't think we'll ever make the leap to a more preventative curriculum until we just bite the bullet and do it. And because, you know, if we put value on it and there's value on it in, in patients and practice in the, in the practice of physicians with their patients, they'll see it long-term. And it's a cultural shift for us as a nation and the healthcare system as a whole. 
They're just no, going to take I, time. I agree with all of those, and and certainly the, you know, the idea that um, if we want to influence some of these curriculum decisions, it is everything, including what's on the boards. And we were finally able to get the medical boards uh, to have more nutrition questions on the boards, because then we can go to the medical schools and say, you know, whatever percent is here. And you're right, that's part of how we get changes in our in our academic medicine uh, culture. And I, you know, absolutely echo the idea of how do we keep going, how do we keep pushing our healthcare system to uh, to recognize and give value to the preventive health parts so that we can spend a little bit more time on that when we're seeing our patients and have our our other healthcare providers, like our nurse educators or dietitians, you know, be able to have time with their patients and really to, to be reimbursed. And I think we are making progress. And I'm happy to say now, though, I think part of it is also coming from patients, the population, advocacy groups. And like you said, it's so hard to get behavior change. So we need all of the, the thinking and opportunity uh, that we can. So to sort of stay on that theme, so here we are talking a lot about how do we have a healthier uh, society, and certainly nutrition is part of that, and also physical activity, which we, we haven't talked about, but those often go hand in hand. But I think one of the unique things when I think of PCOM also is, you know, both the, the history and the heritage, and now that you have these three different campuses in very different communities. You know, going from a very urban setting to sort of the middle and to really a more really rural setting. Um, how has PCOM able to get both the institution and the students and the faculty involved with uh, the communities? Uh, because you really are quite unique in spanning different medical settings. We're often very narrow, you know, in where our place is in this um, sort of geography times education? It's kind of a threefold approach. In Philadelphia, it's easier because we have our primary healthcare centers and we're trying to build them out to give more access to patients in the community and add services that eventually will make them not only patient care centers, but really wellness centers. Good. Uh, we've started food banks at our primary healthcare centers because we know how important nutrition is and basic food insecurity, especially the last two years with COVID. So that's something we're proud of. And just partnering with local religious organizations and just really becoming integral parts of the community, whether it's immunization drives. I mean, across all three campuses, we delivered 6,000 COVID immunizations. In Georgia, it's a little, it's a little more difficult because we don't have primary healthcare centers. So it's partnering with community services. For example, in Moultrie, the rural area you referenced, we actually work with a lot of migrant workers in the summers because that's when they do a lot of harvesting. So our students volunteer at, at, at centers that provide migrant care. And we work with the high schools from a pathways perspective to get involved in the community at the high school and middle school level. A, to get people interested in healthcare as a career, 
and also just to be part of community. And we're looking to see how we can build out some primary healthcare centers, either with partners or ourselves in both Atlanta and the Atlanta area around our Gwinnett County campus and in Moultrie. Because community health is a major driver and that we need to be part of it. So that's what we're looking to achieve over the next several years. Well, that's, that's very ambitious, and, uh, but I also think very on target and I wish for the every success. And again, I think the chance that you have uh, these different settings will just make it a richer environment for everybody involved in PCOM. Just to go back to one of the things you said that I think is the perfect link you know, for all of the, the, we have now learned how prevalent food insecurity is and often surprised when we're talking to patients that you would not necessarily think were in food insecure households. But we went around and asked those questions for a while and didn't have much to provide except, well, here, here's the list of community services and things like that. But I think the next step, which you have done and a few other places have done, is to go ahead and have the food bank there. And fortunately, we've done some of that um, at CHOP as well. You know, you don't want to ask somebody, are you hungry, and then not help them. So being able to leave the medical center with some food that will help you tonight, you know, in addition to that list of here are the community food banks or the other places you can go for help. So I think, again, that real action-oriented, can we do something today in food insecurity is a great example of being thoughtful and innovative. So I appreciate hearing that story. Well, thank you. And uh, Dr. Stawns, I want to really thank you for joining us today. And this was a great conversation. Your research is critical to better understanding the relationship between nutrition and disease and ensuring our communities live longer, healthier lives. We appreciate your insight and perspective on a topic that affects all of us. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Dr. Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives.